So, needs no announcement. We are still in the middle of a global pandemic, hopefully winding down. Uh, and yet, in the news, I'm sure you've seen uh, Minneapolis has had nightly violent protests because of the violent death of George Floyd, who was killed by a police officer. And the National Guard has been called in. And I believe if there's ever been a time for the church to stop and call on God, this is it. Uh, I believe that, that he is trying to get our attention and we ought to pause and Perhaps right now you feel angry for different reasons. Perhaps you feel sorrow for what is lost, the the tragic loss of life and the suffering of the city of Minneapolis. Uh, Perhaps you feel fear for many different reasons. And perhaps you feel powerless, like we live in Holly, Michigan. What can we do that will have any influence for good anywhere? Uh, And so I want to urge you to pray with me we can pray together and we can ask God to heal our land. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have promised that one day we will live in peace. Your word says in Isaiah and in Revelation both that one day you will wipe every tear from our eyes. That one day perfect justice will reign but right now we lack peace and justice. Father, we mourn the loss of life. Lord, we pray because some who have been entrusted with keeping peace have instead killed with reckless and careless force. And we ask for justice, Lord. We we don't know everything. Lord, as we long for justice, many are not willing to wait, and they have become violent themselves. Some have publicly called for violence because they believe it is necessary, and they are encouraging it. Lord, I ask that you would help us as a nation to remember that vengeance ultimately belongs to you. You are the just judge. And Lord, we do long for justice now. We, we don't want to plead for future justice and excuse present inaction. So I pray that you would use good and wise leaders, both in Minneapolis and in our country, to punish those who are guilty and to liberate and to protect those who are innocent. Father, we pray for our minority population, especially God, I pray that you would help us as a nation to treat all people equally under the law. Father, I ask that you would bring healing to our broken land. I ask that people of color would be able to live without fear. I pray that you would bring us peace now. And as we grieve for the city of Minneapolis, I ask that you would bring healing there. I ask that you would move blacks and whites to come together to pray, to seek you nationwide. Father, you are our only hope. You are the only God who can reconcile people who are alienated from each other. And we ask that you would do that, especially in the church. We pray that you would do it for our whole country. Father, you are the father of all people of every skin color. I pray that 
your church in America and around the world would be a place of racial harmony. That forever we would no longer have white churches and black churches or or churches of different ethnicities, but we would have one church. Lord, we do also want to pray for our police officers, those who are trying to serve the public in a just and a fair way, and yet this is so hard. I pray that you would protect them. I ask that you would help them, give them courage, give them great wisdom, and I pray that you would keep them from harm. Pray that you would help those who are serving in Minneapolis right now. And Father, I ask that as we are a nation battling sickness and battling division and battling so much hatred, I pray that you would help us to finally turn to you. I pray that you would let us be humbled before you. I pray that we would truly seek your face. I pray that we would truly turn from our wicked ways. And I ask that you would heal our land. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask it. Amen. As we turn to the word this morning, I want to begin with some questions. What hope does our broken nation have? What hope does Holly, Michigan have? In my prayer this morning, I spoke about the violence in Minneapolis. I spoke about race relations just a little bit. I believe that they have grown worse in the past 10 years, not better. I believe that it is generally true that that minorities feel less safe and less comfortable today than they did 10 years ago. And while our law enforcement, I believe, on the whole, seeks to be very just, and we have many good officers, we can thank God for them, These very public failures have made it very hard to keep peace. And the fact that they keep occurring all across the nation suggests that it's it's not really just a localized problem. This is the second time in five years that the National Guard has been deployed in America to keep peace in an American city. We are not facing a foreign foe. We have problems from within. And it seems that every time protests in one place die down, there's no permanent or lasting healing. It's just a band-aid on a festering sore that eventually causes a deeper problem. And I would love, as a Christian and as a pastor, to quickly say that the church offers a solution, but it doesn't seem quite that simple. Nationally, the church is still very segregated. It may be slightly better than it was 50 years ago, but now many white Christians are very quick to point out statistics that show that on the whole, police departments are very careful with their use of force, and in our rush to deny a problem, many of our brothers and sisters who are black and other ethnic minorities, they they just feel isolated and alone in their grief. Like we don't care about their fear and we don't care about their sorrow. And that's true within the church. In 2016, I saw organizations that I love and pay attention to that love the gospel, that love the word of God, that, that love good, rich theology. I saw organizations that I love struggle to maintain racial diversity. Many minorities from within those organizations 
felt like white evangelicals did not understand them or care to understand them. In fact, many very publicly left evangelicalism, and dozens of articles in national newspapers like USA Today and and Christian magazines like Christianity Today began asking the question if using the term evangelical was even worth it anymore, A, a word that used to celebrate our belief in the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and we love the gospel of preaching to all people of every color that if you repent of your sins, you find new life in Christ. That term evangelical defined many people with no regard for color. And yet in 2016 and moving on into 2020, many minorities began to question whether they really fit into the evangelical church within America. And I am a pastor in a small town in a mostly white church, not not all white, but mostly white. And so I ask myself, and I would ask us as a church, what part do we play in this national problem? And church, I believe that we at First Baptist Church of Holly need to take this national moment seriously. Many of you are old enough to remember the riots of the 60s. Some of you were in high school then. Some of you were a little bit older. Many of you at different times and in different ways, have expressed a sort of tiredness that this issue has not gotten better and not gone away, and many would in some ways wish that I would not talk about it. But I believe that it's a mistake to be silent. I would urge you to not let your heart grow hard, to not let your ears be deaf, Recognize both the anger and the tears of many in our nation, and perhaps for a time, just weep. To be frank, I mentioned, I don't want to quickly say the church offers the solution. I believe the church is in desperate need of revival, our church and every church nationwide. Some churches that have faithfully held to good theology have done nothing to help their neighborhoods. And some churches, in an effort to to be relevant to the culture, have forsaken biblical truth. And I believe that there is place for every church to repent of sin and to seek a new blessing of the Lord, a new outpouring of his spirit. I believe that our church, here in Holly, in our own way, can seek the Lord and pray for national revival. I believe that the church is the solution to our problems because it's in the church that we hear the good news of Jesus preached. It's in the church that we can have our own sins forgiven. It's in the church that sinners can be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. But that only happens as we faithfully seek the Lord. And I believe One of the marks of genuine revival, I've read guys like Edwards, I love Edwards, and he lists some great evidence of a true working of the Holy Spirit, but one thing he never talked about, at least not to my knowledge, is I believe one of the marks of true genuine revival is a diverse church. I believe that when our congregations are more diverse, they better help a watching world understand what God has done for sinners who are guilty. 
that he can reconcile people who used to hate each other. But it's only as the church seeks that kind of diversity that we maintain the witness that God can do this today among us and in us. And I believe that revival starts with each of us. It starts with me and it starts with you. We need to seek God with all our hearts. We need to give God not just part of our lives, but all of our lives. And I believe that God is calling us as a church to a moment of repentance and recommitment. Church, I know because I've talked to some of you, some of us are growing restless in lockdown when we should be growing fervent in prayer. This crisis, this moment is bigger than any one of us. And I believe that we must urgently seek the Lord. And I believe that it comes down to this. We as a people, and I'm speaking both for First Baptist Church of Holly, but also nationally and even globally, we as people need to know who we are before the Lord. Irrespective of skin color or gender or anything else, we need to understand who we are before God. We need to understand who we are as a church and what it means to be the church. And this is not as simple as it might seem. You may know, if you have seen the the past couple of messages that I've preached, that I'm preaching through Ezra, because I believe that God can bless broken people when broken people seek him. That's what Ezra tells us about. And I am continuing to preach through Ezra today because I believe that it speaks to this national moment because it shows how people pay attention to who they are in God and how they seek to honor exactly what he said. Today, we see a group of scattered, broken people understand who they are before God. And today, if you have looked at our text, you may actually wonder why it's even in the Bible. Because, to be honest, it's just a list of names. But if you pause and consider, do you know what this list does? This passage in Ezra chapter 2 shows that the people of Ezra's day understood exactly where they fit among the people of God. So here's what I want to do. I want to take just a moment and I want to explain how this ancient list of names helps us understand what God has done in the past. I want to describe why this list matters, why it's a blessing to you and to me. And then I want to talk for a few moments about who we are It's 21st century Americans who live in Holly, Michigan, or perhaps you live around here somewhere, or maybe you're watching from far away. I I don't know. But I want to talk about who we are as the people of God today and what it means for us to be part of God's people. And and you might say that I want to make a list of names from our church, from our church friends and our church family, and I want to understand how each person as a part of our body relates to God and to each other. Because if we are going to see God bless us here in Holly, we need to understand what he has called us to be in the church. So let's begin with what God called the people of Ezra's in Ezra's day to be. 
In Ezra chapter 2, I'm just going to read a couple of verses at the beginning. It says, now these were the people of the province, and that's talking about the province in Babylon. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. And then it describes several different groups of people. And if you look through this list, it's a lot of names, it's a lot of numbers. But what it does is it demonstrates that the people were ready to return to the promised blessings of God. It's not the only place in the Bible you see a list of names like this. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible called the Book of Numbers, where at the beginning and end of the book, all of the people are listed and divided into their different tribes, and every group is given a specific job. And if you pay attention to what's happening in the Book of Numbers, what you understand is that God is getting ready to to bless his people, and he's organizing them so they understand how they claim their blessings. If you were part of a certain tribe, if you were part of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was given a specific amount of land. And so in order to claim your land where you would build your house and farm your crops, you had to demonstrate you were related to Benjamin. And if you were part of the tribe of Levi, you were entrusted with the things of the tabernacle. Now now remember, God gives his people the tabernacle so that he can dwell with them, so that he lives with them. The tabernacle is where they offer sacrifices so that their sins can be forgiven. And it's the key to their living in fellowship with God and enjoying all the blessings. So, So knowing who you are as a part of the tribe of Levi, you would know your responsibilities as a Levite. You might have been responsible for helping carry the altar on a pole. You might have been responsible for helping tear down the tabernacle when the people of God would move from place to place. Or maybe you were part of helping set it up. Maybe you were part of the priests and you were responsible for purifying the tabernacle so that you could worship God. But all of it was designed to help the people of God know how they could claim the blessings of God. So when they read those lists of names, rather than being boring, they would have said, I get to claim this plot of land because this is my family. This is where I've come from. My God saved me. And they would say every year at Passover, I was a slave in Egypt, but God rescued me out of slavery and he gave me this blessing. And they knew how they fit among God's people because of those lists. And so when you turn to Ezra and you see a new group of people, tracing their history to understand who they are, they are claiming the same promises and the same blessing. They have the same hope that they will dwell with God, that he will give them peace, that he will bless their crops, that he will bless their families, that they will enjoy all of God's abundant and blessings because they know who they are and how they fit in among the people of God. Not only does this list show us that the people of God are again claiming the blessings of God, even just as someone, maybe you don't know much about the Bible, maybe you sometimes even wonder, is this book even history? Is is this a fairy tale? Is this made up? If you look at a list like this, these are precious names of many, many people who really, truly lived. No one would make up names like this. This is evidence that God worked, and, and these are not cleverly invented stories 
but that God worked in the lives of these families. These men and women with their children were willing to march all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem because they believed that just as God had blessed their ancestors a thousand years before, that he would be faithful to his promises and bless them. And so they were willing to take a dangerous journey to go all the way back. And these names stand as a testament through the ages, through millennia, literally, that God keeps his promises to his people. And when we hope in the promises of God, we can remember how he was faithful to them and know that our hope is real and genuine because people in the past found God to be faithful. Not only is this list evidence that God's people were going to claim God's promises, not only is this list a testament to the history of God genuinely actually working in real human history, but this list shows that God's people were grouped for service within the people of God. And you say, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I mentioned a little bit about a special tribe, the Levite tribe and a little bit about from within the Levitical tribe, that there were certain families that were selected to serve as priests. See, you could not just decide, you know what, I want to grow up and be a priest. If you were from the tribe of Benjamin, you couldn't do that. And and that might sound mean, that that might sound callous. If you're a tribe of Sinian, sorry, out, out of luck. You cannot serve as a priest. The only way you could serve as a priest, if you were born into specific families within the specific tribe of Levi, you might say, well, why is that? Well, you can read a little bit about how God chose to set up the priesthood that way. But most importantly, what you have to understand is that if you tried to approach God in his tabernacle and you were not a priest, that you would be destroyed by the holiness of God. And you say, what do you mean by destroyed? I mean that you would die. Because God very clearly said, you cannot approach his holiness unless you had been appointed as a priest and unless you had followed the exact instructions that God had given to the priest. In fact, multiple priests in the Old Testament died because they disregarded God's clear instructions. And what this list shows is the people of God are not only claiming the promises of God, but they are trying to understand how they can obey and follow the exact instructions of God. So you can see a couple of groups. I'm not going to read every name here, but you can see the men and the people of Israel. So so that's the whole group that's wanting to return, and it describes many different families and gives you numbers from each family of how many people returned from Babylon. But not only does it describe generally the men of the people of Israel, it also describes the priests, and it mentions four specific families. Uh, In some ways, this list, if you pay attention to the numbers here, is actually kind of tragic. You can read in the Old Testament how as the priests were given the responsibilities and duties, uh, when David... David was preparing for his son Solomon to build the temple. He organized many of the people of Israel. He had 24 priestly families, and he gave them each different jobs and different functions. And when the people return under Ezra, rather than 24 families with many different responsibilities that could pull off just an awesome worship service, they had four priestly families. Many ways, this is an exciting work of God, but as we're going to see towards the end of this chapter... Many of the people were in grief because it seemed small and they became discouraged. 
So you see the men of the people of Israel, you see the priests returning in a small group, and then you see the Levites. This is especially tragic. The Levites used to be one of the largest tribes in Israel, and yet as the Levites return, there are very, very few. Compared to the other tribes and the other families, there are hardly any Levites who are ready to serve in temple worship. But you see, verse 40, the Levites are described in verses 41 and 42. There are some singers who would have been involved in temple worship, and it mentions who they are. And if you're born into this family, this is your responsibility. Your dad's going to teach you how to sing, going to teach you how to play some instruments. And then there are the gatekeepers, those who are responsible for making sure that as people began to approach the the place where God was worshipped, that they were ready. They would have said, you know, hey, are are you ceremonial clean? Have you touched anything dead? Are you really ready to come worship God? Because it's an awesome blessing, but it's also dangerous if you're not ready. So they had gatekeepers set up to guard the the temple. Not only that, verse 43, it describes temple servants, those who were responsible for different tasks associated with worship, and and then the sons of Solomon's servants in verse 55, and and all of these people are understanding who they are because of who their families were and what they will do as they return to Jerusalem so that they can worship God, so that they can be blessed by God. They're, They're not choosing what they want to do. They're not picking their favorite position. They're understanding who they are before God, and they're ready to serve. And then lastly, there's a strange group in, in verse 59. says, following all of those that it had mentioned and counted, that there were those that could not prove their father's house or their descent. Uh, and in fact, that they claimed that they were priests. They were son of the priests. And so verse 62, they sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean, and the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim and the Thummim. Now, I'll explain some of those weird things in just a second, but what that means is that there were some people that their papa sat him on his knees, his son, before we lived in Babylon, before we were sent into exile, our family was able to serve as priests in the temple of God. And it was a position of privilege and it was a, pr- a position of joy. As people from all parts of Israel would come to worship, they would bring the best of their crops and the best of their animals to worship at Jerusalem. And, and living at the temple, it was kind of like a constant party. They, they were constantly baking bread and they were constantly sacrificing animals and roasting meat. And, and they would have constantly eaten the best of all of the produce of Israel. And so you can imagine the priestly families in Babylon missing what they once had and longing to go back to priestly ministry where they could serve God and experience all the blessings of God. Really, in many ways, the best of the blessings of all of Israel. And this family knows that they're part of the priestly family because Papa told them so. And yet when they go back to the land and they consult the genealogies, their names aren't there. And they recognize, you know, maybe maybe the genealogy is wrong. We don't know. But they do this. They don't say, all right, we're going to honor your tradition and your history. Just go ahead and serve. They don't. 
Why? Because they recognize the awesome holiness of God and the danger of approaching God. If you're not part of a genuine priestly family and you've not been purified, approaching God is not a blessing. It is a great danger. And so they don't assume or presume that they have a right. They wait. And what do they wait for? Well, the text says they wait until there's a priest who's able to consult the Urim and the Thummim. And if you read in Exodus, as God is describing what the priestly garments wear, they have a couple of little stones. We don't know exactly what they were, but we do know that they were used to ask God direct questions. Most of the priests who served God, who consulted God and asked him, they didn't hear his voice like Moses did or like Abraham did. They asked him and then they used these stones. They might have tossed them like dye. We don't know exactly how they worked, but they consulted God and God did actually speak to them. He said he would and he did. And so they were to wait until they could have a priest who would directly ask God, are these people genuinely priests? Can they serve as priests? And if you read a little later in the book, you find that the answer was actually yes. That as they waited and honored God, that God answered their prayers and they were welcomed back into the priesthood and they were able to serve and worship together and the people all together were blessed because they sought the will of God together. So you see that there's this new exodus that God is again blessing his people. He's rescuing them from slavery. He's calling them back to this land of blessing. You see that they're grouped for service, that they want to understand who they are. You see their concern for holiness. Although they were small in number, although not very many people had returned, they were dedicated. And you can see their dedication because you can see that they gave generously. The, the end of this chapter describes how they, they gather together and verse 68 says, some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, they made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. And now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. You know what this means? is that although if you were with us last week, you know that God moved in the heart of Cyrus to provide for everything that the temple needed, although that they had carried gold that was not theirs so that the temple could be rebuilt and so that they could worship God, although God was providing in amazing ways, part of their worship is they wanted to give more. They were excited, even though different things were discouraging, they were excited to see what God was doing. A church, we can look at many different things that are discouraging, but we can also recognize our good God is working in our lives and working in his church. And if you recognize what he's doing, I believe that you will have a heart to give everything, not, not just money, I'm talking about your very life that you will want to devote yourself to the service of God. And I don't care if you're 6 or 60 or 8 or 80. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can give everything you have to God today. And I believe that as God worked in the lives of these people, you know, Ezra takes place a little over 2,500 years ago. It's a long time. Even though this is about 2,500 years ago, God has not changed. 
And as we seek him humbly, I believe that we will see him bless us. And you may think there's nothing to do with with these people. We have nothing in common with them except that we do. In fact, as God called those people out of slavery in Babylon to freedom in Israel, God has called us from slavery under our sin and in our darkness and in our blindness, and he has called us to freedom in Christ. The New Testament describes Jesus as leading an exodus. He leads his people out of bondage and out of a curse into freedom and into a blessing. And in the church, there are some differences. In the church, it doesn't matter what your family name is. We come to Jesus by grace through faith. And the apostle Peter puts it like this. He says, you were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. Now, the people of Israel, they were ransomed by offering sacrifices. They offered, a, they slaughtered a lamb every year to remember how God had delivered them out of Egypt, how they were redeemed by the blood of a literal lamb in the Old Testament, but we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we were separated from God and the wages of sin is death. We were under a curse because of our sin, but Christ redeemed us from the curse by his own precious blood. And so just like Israel was delivered from under a curse through the blood of a lamb, we have been delivered from a curse by the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. And we are led out by our savior, Jesus. Peter says that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. He says, you were guilty before God. You were in danger of his judgment. And Jesus shed his blood for your sins and rescued you. And Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.24. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He says, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In other words, we were all scattered and Christ gathered us together and delivered us. There is a new exodus led by Jesus Christ. And if you have believed in him, you are part of it. Jesus didn't just die to save your soul. He certainly did that, but he did so much more. He died to make you part of God's people. And as the people of God, we ought to be distinct. We ought to be different. We ought to be dedicated to living for what Peter calls righteousness. As God's new people called together by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're no longer entertained by the same things. We are not dedicated to the same lifestyle as unbelievers. Our heart is broken Not only because of the sin and the pain of the world, but our heart is broken because not everyone knows the goodness of our Savior. We as a people ought to be dedicated to bringing people with us to our heavenly home. But but not only has Jesus called us out and made us part of this new exodus, Jesus has also grouped us for service. We all in the church have different gifts. All gifts are necessary. Perhaps you may sing or play an instrument. Maybe you love kids and you want to teach. Maybe you love cleaning and you want to help us sanitize our building. And if that's you, I need you to get a hold of me. Contact me this week. God bless you. Maybe you love the word of God and maybe you're gifted and you're called to teach. 
teach. Maybe you're called to preach. Maybe you are a quiet servant. And you'll be plowing the parking lot and and you'll be driving a fork truck. Maybe you're the type of person who's going to meet the needs of our elderly saints and you're going to do it quietly so that no one sees you or knows and yet you're an incredible blessing for the entire congregation because you use your gifts to humbly serve. Maybe you know who you are and how you fit into the people of God. Maybe God has made you very generous and you love to give financially and you do it quietly with zero recognition. Whatever your gift is, church, I believe that we need to serve together in greater unity with greater respect for the gifts that God has given us. You know, there was a time when we encouraged more spiritual gift testing, and I think there were some downsides to that. But now many people feel like we pay professionals to run the church, and we just attend the service. And that has never been God's intention. Peter, again, says, this is 1 Peter 2, 9, you, and he's speaking to Gentiles. He's not speaking to Jewish people. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, if there's any confusion and you think he's talking to one specific race, look at verse 10. He says, once you were are not a people. In other words, you're not physically related to each other, but now you are God's people. And how have you become God's people? He says, once you had not received mercy. In other words, you were guilty and in your sins, but now you have received mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4.11, that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Stop right there. He didn't say he gave them all of these professional workers to do the work of the ministry. The work of a pastor, the work of a teacher is to equip all of the church to do the work of the ministry. How do we work together? We build up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith. Church, we are not a unified nation. And I believe at times we're not even a unified church because we don't submit to the clear teaching of the prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. The thing that unites us is understanding the word of God and what God has done in us and through us. Paul says, verse 13, we are to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, knowing about Jesus unites us, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. We're all going to be like Jesus. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now that image of being tossed about by waves, that is a picture of turmoil. That is a picture of people rioting, people angry over things that that they cannot change. If you are a reasoning, wise person, you never need to fight, at least very rarely. But within the church, we also fight. We have our favorite teachers and we go after people that tickle our ears because we like what they say and, and they make us feel good about ourselves. But the question is not, What teacher makes me feel good? What teacher do I like? The question is, what does the word of God say? And if we as a church at First Baptist Church of Holly are not devoted to knowing the word, we will be 
scattered and divided by many different teachers as we all pick our own favorites and our own preferences. But if we recognize that God has called us together in Christ and that God has given us teachers within our church, and I believe some of you are called to teach and you're not teaching yet, and some of you are called to teach and you could be teaching better and more faithfully, and some of us are called to learn and we're not very dedicated learners. We try different things and listen to different teachers on TV and on the internet and on the radio, and yet that doesn't help our unity as a church because we all hear different things and we all judge what we think is true and what we like to hear. And then we gather together as a church and just argue and bicker and say, well, we're never going to agree. Church, we need to be united around the word of God. We need to understand who we are as the people of God. We need to recognize the different gifts that God has given us and work together in unity. And that will only happen as we are dedicated to knowing the word. Finding someone that you happen to like online or on TV, frankly, to be blunt, is a dumb idea. Be devoted to the word so that even when you don't like what you are hearing, if it's faithful to the word of God, you accept it as true. Humble yourself under the word so that you're not led astray by some guy with slick hair and expensive teeth. The only way to assess a teacher is by the word. It's not if you like his jokes. It's not if you think that he's funny. It's did he handle the word of God faithfully and accurately. You can't make that assessment if you don't know it. And I say this not to point my finger at other other teachers and other preachers. There are great preachers in our area. I want to be held to this standard as well. Some people are devoted to two or three verses of scripture that they have badly misunderstood. You will not be blessed by God if you don't know all of his word. It doesn't mean that you have to be a scholar, but it does mean that you need to be a learner. The teaching ministry of the church helps the serving ministry of the church stay faithful to the gospel and faithful to Jesus Christ. And if the teaching ministry is disconnected from the serving ministry, there's a chance that you can do a lot of good, but it'll have zero impact for eternity because no one will come to know the Lord Jesus. And frankly, if the teaching ministry is separated from the serving ministry, the teaching ministry runs the risk of being cold and lifeless and irrelevant to the culture around us. Church, we can talk about racial harmony until we're blue in the face, but until we actually seek reconciliation with people that we can see and touch and hear in person, it will do no good. One of the greatest strengths that our church has is its ministry to the poor in our area. But we need to seek not just the poor, but we need to seek everyone. We need to know our neighbors. We need to seek people who are different from us and and listen as well as share the love of Jesus. So I want to urge you, I believe this starts in my heart and it starts in your heart. Be committed to being a learner of the scriptures. Be committed to being part of the teaching at your local church. Be faithful, if you are a teacher, in studying and knowing the word. And let's all together work to grow in greater unity. Not only has God made us part of this new exodus, not only has he organized us for service within the church with some as teachers and others as servers, but also he has called us together with a deep concern for holiness. Most of my New Testament references this morning have been out of 1 Peter 
I've got one more for you. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Church, if there's no difference in your life as a Christian from your life as a non-Christian, you may not genuinely know the Lord. Peter says that you used to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. If you still have all the same passions, you're probably still ignorant. But if you have new passions, if you have a deep desire to know the Lord, if you have a hunger to know his word, pursue it. Peter says that it's like a baby longing for milk. You don't have to have a deep understanding. You don't have to have a college degree. You just have to have a desire. You just have to want to know it. You just want to grow in it. It doesn't mean that you're automatically mature. It means that you're moving in the right direction. Pursue holiness. One of my great fears as a pastor is that Jesus will return and our church will not be ready. You get ready by pursuing holiness. Holiness means being pure. It means being obedient to God's commands. It means being full of the joy of God's presence. In Ezra's day, they didn't assume that they could do what they wanted. They sought to know who they were before the Lord, and then they did what they were called to do. And church, I believe that we need to seek the Lord the same way that God has told us to do. One of the ways that I believe we pursue holiness is by being dedicated to worshiping God together. The whole point of what was happening in Ezra's day is they wanted the presence of God in their lives. They wanted a temple. They wanted God's blessings. And too many people today are not devoted to seeking God. They live for themselves. We desperately need God in our lives. We need God in Holly. We need God in America. We need God in our world. And the time has come to ask God to purify your heart and your life and my heart and my life and to lead us in holy living. We need to ask God, are, are there sins that we must forsake? First Baptist Church of Holly, I believe that we need to look again at the New Testament and see how a church should be structured. It is different than in Ezra's day. We have different instructions, but we do have instructions. We need to have the same devotion to following God's word as the people of Ezra did. And I want to ask, will you as a church member be willing to look again at God's word to learn about the church? Will you commit to doing church God's way? Some have suggested that there are passages of the New Testament that are irrelevant for the church, that culture has changed and we no longer need them. And I believe that if we forsake the clear teaching of God's word, we will not enjoy the blessings of God's promises. Will you commit to following the word of God as it's written? Will you trust that God has not changed and his word has not changed? And so that rather than updating the word to conform to us, we should instead conform to it? Church, this is not just about our local church. This is also about the national church. And as we look at the Bible to find out what our church should look like, we need to pray for more diversity in the American church. We should not have black churches and white churches we should not have Hispanic churches. I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate diversity. We absolutely should celebrate diversity. 
One of the beautiful things about the church is that we are united and yet at the same time, wonderfully different from each other. But we shouldn't have ethnic churches. We should just have churches. So if we have understood God's heart for a racial diverse church, then let's pray that he would make us diverse. When we see a broken world, let's be faithful to humble ourselves before God and pray. When the church is not helping the nation heal as it should, let's cry out to God for mercy and help. Father, as we've looked in your word and seen you work, we ask that you'd work in us and just pray that you would do it again. Revive and restore. Give every person in our church a heart to know your word. Let us be humble the way people in Ezra's day were, seeking to know how we should serve together in unity so that we can experience your blessings and your presence. And Lord, I pray that you'd pour out your spirit on the churches all over America, that we would see real revival, that we would see racial reconciliation, that it would be beautiful, that it would be exactly what you want your church to be, that we would be great salt and light in the midst of a world that is desperate for love and for you. And I ask that through the blood of Jesus, that you would heal us, that you would forgive us, that you would bless us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.